to get to the finish. Great. So what Deirdre doesn't know is the, the topics that we're looking at this morning is about work and about parenting. Two things that we need endurance for. Amen? So Father, would you give us your word this morning? Would you strengthen us? Would you equip us to, to run this race that you've called us to run? In Jesus' name. Amen. So work and parenting. We're going to read in Ephesians 6 in a moment, but just uh, for those who haven't heard, Ainsley and Nell, who are part of our church, their little baby came a week early. So Friday morning, they had to have an emergency Caesar. A uh, little boy is called Daniel, uh, and he, he um, went into ICU on a ventilator, and the amazing news is yesterday, he came off the ventilator, not needing any more oxygen, breathing by himself, and uh, they're still in the hospital, a little bit of a journey to go, but amazing to celebrate. If you know them, please send them a message and say, well done. Uh, and then the currents, Terry and Lainey became grandparents again this week, so congrats to them, their second grandchild. And while we're celebrating uh, on this day, 22 years ago, Roman was born. <laughs> so well done to all of those. And uh, fitting that we should talk about parenting, hey. <laughs> Go with me to Ephesians chapter 6. We're making our way through the book of Ephesians in the series. And we're going to read the first few verses from verse 1. Children, are there any children here? Okay, you, you want to go back and be a child. Much easier being a child, though. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so this should probably be read in the kids' church. <laughs> Obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with a promise, so that it may go well with you and that you may enjoy long life on the earth. Fathers, if you're a father, put up your hand. Father's Day next Sunday, hey? Just reminding all the other non-fathers here. Fathers, do not exasperate your children. Instead, bring them up in the training and instruction of the Lord. Slaves, obey your earthly masters with respect and fear and with sincerity of heart, just as you would obey Christ. Obey them not only to win their favor when their eye is on you, but as slaves of Christ, doing the will of God from your heart. Serve wholeheartedly as if you were serving the Lord not people, because you know that the Lord will reward each one for whatever good they do, whether they are slave or free. And masters, treat your slaves in the same way. Do not threaten them since you know that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven and there is no favoritism with him. Sure. So Paul deals with parenting and slavery. Now, slavery in the sense that we understand formally ended in the late 1700s, mid-1800s in the USA, that type of slavery is no longer with us. So we're not that familiar with what slavery is about. We might have heard about it at school in history lessons, etc. Um, the kind of slavery that does happen in our world today is human trafficking and prostitution and all that area. And that is very real and terrible and sadly on the rise. We're not going to talk about that today because Paul's talking about the relationship between the slave and the slave owner, which for us today most approximates a work environment. So this series for the whole book of Ephesians that we're looking at is called Live a Life Worthy of the Calling that God's called us with. 
And this applies not just to our spiritual lives, but to every part of our life, our natural life, whatever we think that might be. That includes parenting, the day-to-day stuff, parenting, going to work every day, bringing up the kids. And both parenting and having a job and a career are massive callings. They're huge. And God says, live a life that's worthy of this calling. In other words, God has a calling. God has a standard with how we should live, not just with our faith, but in every part of our life. I don't know about you, but when I look at my parenting and my work, I work for a company, I often feel overwhelmed, like I'm in over my head. If you ever had that feeling, then it's, it's, uh, I know what you feel like be it work or parenting or something else, then I, I trust today's message will encourage you. Okay, so parenting. I've got a few funny quotes because parenting is serious business that we need to laugh a lot more when we're parents, you know? So can you put up the first quote, please, Isabel? Parenthood always comes as a shock. We set out to have a kid and we got a total takeover of our lives. Second one. Don't worry that your children will never listen to you. Worry that they're always watching you. Next one. Any child will run an errand for you, if you ask at bedtime. (laughs) Next one. Parents were invented to make children happy by giving them something to ignore. Man, I know that feeling. The next one's also funny. The quickest way for a parent to get a child's attention is to sit down and look comfortable. (laughs) Oh, boy. A couple of serious ones. Franklin Roosevelt. We cannot always build the future for our youth, but we can build the youth for our future. It's deep, eh? And last quote. It's easier to build strong children than to repair broken men. It doesn't that show the weight and the importance of our parenting, eh? But parenting is a, it's an incredible privilege. And I think for most of us, and I include myself 100% in this category, is that we often focus on the sacrifice and the pain of parenting rather than the privilege. We see it so often how much we have to do for our kids and sacrifice and wake up in the middle of the night and lay aside what we want for our kids. We see the pain more than the privilege. I know that's true for me. I'm often like, how's life doing? Oh, it's so hard with three kids, you know? And I've just, I've lost sight of the privilege of parenting and I'm focusing on the pain. But we get, as parents, we get to show them what love is. Whether you had a great set of parents when you were growing up or you didn't, whatever the baseline you're starting with, you as a parent get to show your kids what love is, what care is, what it means to be fun and to be silly. We get to protect them and play with them. We get to teach them about life and about God. There's no greater privilege than to be a parent. Most other people, 99.99999% of people on planet Earth are not going to listen to me and what I think is good or bad, whether I'm in the workplace or with my friends, but my kids, I get to shape how they think and see the world. How I live and parent them is going to influence them for the rest of their lives and who they choose to marry and how they see marriage. We had marriage enrichment this week and 
everything in their lives, I get to have a direct and significant influence on. It's not like that with anyone else. Parenting is an amazing privilege. Our kids will go into life using that, that word from Franklin Roosevelt with how we've built them. We're going to build our kids for the life and for their life. And think about a building site that's having stuff arriving and then having to build. We did some renovations a few years ago. We know what it looks like to have nothing on the site and then to have a slab and then to build the walls, etc. We have to build our kids for their life. We have to build in them security and identity and purpose and direction and value and self-worth. All these things we get to instill in them. Yeah, their, their friends at school are going to have an influence. Their teachers are going to have an influence, etc. But, but primarily as parents, we have the biggest influence. And it's a staggering privilege. It really is amazing. So Paul instructs children to obey their parents in the Lord. And then two verses later, he says, Fathers, bring them up in the ways of the Lord. Now, I'm not going to focus on obedience and how to raise good kids because I need help with that. And we're going to be in August sometime doing a parenting intensive. And we'll talk about that very soon. But the amazing thing about those verses is that Paul assumes that children can have a full spiritual life. Obey them in the Lord. Fathers, bring them up in the Lord. He's not saying in mathematics and in science and in home ec or in whatever. He says in the Lord. Paul assumes our kids can have a full spiritual life. Think about that. That's massive. Other young children in the Bible that God used. Samuel. How old was Samuel when he heard God's voice? He was a lati. Think about David. He killed Goliath. He wasn't an adult. And before he killed Goliath, he was a shepherd. The most amazing intimate relationship with God, worship. David was a worshiper and he wrote songs when he was a kid. Josiah, King Josiah was eight when he became king of Judah. Mary was probably a teenager when Jesus was born. God doesn't look at our kids and see them as, oh, well, they're not adults. They can wait till they're 16 or 18 or 21, and then, you know, then they, then they can learn about God. He doesn't see them as second-class people just because they're young. Age, like with any other way that we categorize people, age does not matter to God, okay? They can have full spiritual lives. They can be born again at a young age. They can be filled with the Holy Spirit and speak in tongues at a young age. They can prophesy. They can have dreams. They can see angels. They can pray for the sick and see healings. They can. God doesn't treat our kids less than He treats us. Vital points. And it's our task as parents to bring them up in the ways of the Lord. That's a big responsibility. But as parents, we need to have learned the ways of the Lord. We need to have learned what it means to obey God and read His Word and understand Him and follow Him and respect Him. Because how are we going to teach our kids if we can't do it? 
We're not prepared to raise them then. The first thing as parents, what we need is a genuine, life-giving relationship with God, where we are delighting in Him, and we are worshiping Him, when we are following Him, we're in love with Him, when we're living by faith. That's the best place to start for being a parent. And Paul addresses the fathers specifically because in that culture, the mothers would do all the child raising. And he's not saying, ah, this is only a job for fathers. He's saying it's a job for all parents because normally in that culture, it was just the mothers. So he says, fathers, don't neglect. You also have a duty. Children need both parents involved in their life, focused, interested, engaged. Here's a quote from Wood. He says, the gospel introduced a fresh element into parental responsibility by insisting that the feelings of the child must be taken into consideration. In a society where the father's authority was absolute, this represented a revolutionary concept. So he says, fathers, don't exasperate your children. Don't upset them. Don't make it hard for them to obey. Consider their feelings. He's not saying, let your child rule the house. It's not parent-led or sorry, child-led parenting, he's not saying that, but he's saying, make sure you don't just run over your kids. Friends, the gospel introduced this, revolutionized how we parent. And so we have to teach our kids the gospel. We have to explain and show them, not just tell them, but show them what it means to have a relationship with Jesus. Do your kids see you read the Bible? Do your kids see you pray? Do your kids see you worship at home? Challenging question. I can't answer yes to all of those. We have to teach them how to pray, how to hear God, how to minister to their friends, how to pray for the sick, how to delight in God, and it's our responsibility as parents. We have an amazing kids ministry team here at church. They're in three, three rooms up here. But it's not their primary responsibility for your kid's faith and for my kid's faith. It's the parents. Our amazing team can do so much one and a half hours on a Sunday morning, but we are with our kids a whole lot more. So we can't delegate or subcontract their faith to others. It's our responsibility. Paul says, parents, uh, kids, obey your parents. He's not saying that we should force them and compel them to obey. Because I think if we enforce compliance through punishment, through fear, through manipulation, through anger, through threatening, they might listen to us, but it's not because they want to. And I promise you one day that will lead to some kind of rebellion down the line. God doesn't threaten us with obedience. Think of how God parents you. Does he manipulate? Does he get angry and throw lightning bolts? No. Grace, love. He's firm. There's clear boundaries. But he's a God of love. and We must not exasperate our children. There are all kinds of different styles of parenting. Many different philosophies. And everyone you speak to has a different opinion. I was chatting to a car salesman the other day. He's about to have his first child in October, and uh, 
he was saying, do you have any advice for me? I told him I've got three kids. Do you have any advice for me? I said to him, but I'm not gonna give you advice because the moment the child's born, everyone gives you free advice without you asking. Don't worry, you'll get lots of it because everyone has an opinion on, uh, on parenting. And as I said, we, early in August, we're gonna do a parenting intensive. It's gonna be a full Saturday morning, a whole bunch of different talks and speakers. We'll be firming that up this week. But it's that important. If I look at Candace and I, our personal life, and the things that we've invested the most in and trying to learn and get better at in the last few years, where we've bought books, done online courses, listened to podcasts, parenting, marriage, and our finances. Those are the three things we've invested a lot of time, effort, reading the Bible, praying, adjusting, because those things are so important. Parenting, one of them. But in August, you will learn a whole lot more. So let's move on, because we need lots of help in our parenting. So Paul talks about slaves and slave owners next. Would anyone here disagree that... Um, slavery is wrong. Anyone think slavery is a good thing? It should come back. No, you can't have your kids as slaves, right? That's not the same thing. So if slavery is clearly wrong, why does the Bible speak about it? Why does the New Testament, we just read New Testament, why does it seem to allow it and permit slavery? Paul's not saying, free your slaves, it's wrong. He doesn't say that. But we know that slavery is wrong, hey? So then why does the Bible, have you ever wondered that? Sure. So before you, we'll get to that in a moment, but, but when you read about slavery in the Bible, there was a slavery that happened in the Old Testament, I say slavery inverted commas, and the one we're reading about in the New Testament, remember these guys were under the Roman occupation, there were two very different types of slavery, okay? The word translated slave in the Old Testament and the New Testament, obviously the Old Testament is Hebrew, the New Testament is Greek, so the words aren't the same, but, but when you translate them, you can use the same Hebrew word or Greek word for servant. In fact, I was reading Colossians 1 this morning, and Paul speaks about being a servant, and there's a little note that says, it also means slave, so when we read about slavery in the Old Testament, that word slave can also be translated servant, okay? Can you put up the, that picture? It's like a table with different words on. I don't know if you can, no, you probably can't see that. But there's three columns. The one is for Old Testament. What did slavery look like in the Old Testament? And then what did it look like under the Romans? In other words, the New Testament and then I say the new world, but the slavery that we are familiar with, slave and human trafficking in the 14, 15, 16, 1700s. And you can look at the different things there and see that the slavery in the Old Testament wasn't probably the slavery that we think about now, right? So in the Old Testament, slaves could have holidays. They had enough food. They had legal redress. If their owners were mean, legally they could have some repercussions. They had sexual protection. They weren't allowed to be kidnapped. They weren't kept in chains. They weren't tortured. There was no physical abuse of slaves. Remember, the Israelites came out of Egypt as slaves. God gave them the law and says, 
you're allowed to have servants because you, you're in a world that has slaves, but you've got to treat them properly. So when we read in the Old Testament about slavery, probably a better word to use is servant because that's, if you look at the Bible, that's what they were allowed. Absolutely anything under the Romans or the New World is wrong, but don't get a picture, God is so terrible. He let them all keep slaves in the Old Testament. Maybe our, our word slavery is a negative word. The word servant is a neutral word, okay? It's got no dark shade of horrible meaning. It's a neutral word. It has to do with someone and their relationship. I'm subservient to Terry. I'm dependent on Terry. I work for Terry. But there's a limitation on the words that are translated. Does that make sense? But the New Testament surely, Glennon, should say that they should release slaves. Well, the, the Christians weren't in governmental power when Paul was writing. The Romans occupied the new world or that part of the world. They couldn't go and change the laws. And if Paul wrote letters and told all the Christians, free your slaves, there'd be massive repercussions. They'd be breaking the law, which God says, don't break the law, obey the governing authorities. And if Paul did do it, many of the Christians would have had massive consequences. They probably would have been killed for breaking the Roman law. But the gospel is more powerful than Roman law. And the gospel can be subtle when it needs to. Because Paul and Peter, they would write to these churches where there were slaves as well as free people. And they would say, love each other as Christ loves you. Greet one another with a holy kiss. Now, a holy kiss was reserved for family. So they're saying, actually, we might not legally be allowed to release slaves, but in this special society, this new community of faith, actually, everyone is the same. Love each other, slave or free, like Christ loved you. Greet each other with a kiss. And so the, the gospel kind of had a subtle influence in that community. Listen to what Moore says. He says, the gospel began at once to undermine slavery with its mighty principles of the equality of all souls and the dignity of manhood and of the equal work of redeeming love wrought for all souls by the supreme master. So there was the gospel was like undercover, if you like. It might not have taken on the government head on, but it started working and changing lives and changing society. And eventually it would be Christians, the Quakers and the Clapham sect in the 1700s that would formally oppose slavery. William Wilberforce, Abraham Lincoln, etc. So slavery, we know it's not something that we deal with on an everyday basis. But I think what Paul would be saying to us today is, how does this kind of relationship affect our work Right? Because most of us, all of us work. So, what does God have to say about our work? Who do you think was the first ever worker? Adam? God? Any other advances? Don't know. <laughs> I think it was God. It says he made the earth in six days. We're not sure how he made it, right? We don't really know, but God created the earth. 
And he looked back and he stood back and he, he surveyed his creation. He surveyed the work of his hands. He said, it is good. So our work, God was the first ever worker. Before Adam did anything, God worked, he made the earth. Look, he didn't work up a sweat. He didn't run out of energy. It's not the kind of work that we know, because God is, God is God. But he was the first worker. So, so work and doing something productive that is good is a godly thing. The fact that God said, it is good, what I've made, what I've done, my effort, my exertion, means that our work should be good. Work, by God's design, is inherently good. God instructed Adam and Eve to work in the garden. The first job ever was gardening. For those who like plants like me, you know that's a, a significant thing. But that happened before the fall. So work that we do is not like, oh, Adam and Eve sinned, God cursed the, the, the ground, now we have to work. It's the fall, you see. No, it's, God gave them stuff to do before the fall of man. The, the fall has distorted it, made it hard. Glendon, you might think, I would love to go back to the garden and be a gardener. You look at my boss and my colleagues. Yeah, give me gardening any day of the week. The fall, as I said, the fall has twisted, has made it hard, made the relationship strained between people. And many people chase their career. Their, their job, their, their progress in their career becomes an idol, becomes a god. Because of the fall, it's been distorted. What was good and made by God to be enjoyed and to be fulfilling and to provide for us and to have meaning and value, actually the devil's distorted it. Many of us chase after a career at the expense of everything else that we lay down in worship of this career. But our actual work, what we do, matters to God. Now, in the temporary and eternally. It's significant to Him. Because God gives us unique skills and abilities and talents and passions in order to fulfill these roles so that society and the world can be a better place. I am so grateful for anyone who's a teacher because I've got three kids and I know what it's like to try and teach kids. But that's an essential part of children learning is having someone with a passion for kids and imparting knowledge and skills to teach them. Now, I know most teachers, or not all teachers, see teaching as a calling, but many of them, despite the hard work, the low pay, and all the other things, they call to teach. They know it. This is what God's done inside me. I'm so grateful for mechanics. I can fix a light bulb, and I can change a tire. That's all I can do. So I'm so grateful that God has gifted people mechanically and technically. I can't. But God gives us these skills for the benefit of mankind. And our work is a good thing. It benefits others. Someone once said that our work is not meant to make us happy. It's meant to make us holy. In other words, God can use my work environment, my colleagues, pressure, deadline, boss, whoever you work with, God can use those things to work on your character, 
to shape you, to change you, to mold you, to make you more like Jesus. God can use anything, even your boss. So we mustn't be upset if maybe work is challenging. Might not be from God, but he can use it even if it's from the devil. God can use it to grow us and make us more like him. Work is also a place where we can demonstrate our faith. You know that our colleagues watch us and what we do. They can see and they hear our speech. Is it positive or always critical? They know if we're taking part or avoiding gossip just by our words. They can see when we are supporting rather than backstabbing those we work with. We can pray for our colleagues, either without them knowing about it. That's the best thing about prayer, hey? You can pray for someone who hates you and that they would never want to talk to you, but you can be like, hey, God, change their heart. Prayer is like a silent missile. Like God can do stuff. I love, I love praying. But, but we can pray for them either without them knowing, or you can, at work, you can say, ah, I see you having a bad day. Can I, can I pray for you? We can do that. It's a place where our faith can be demonstrated. We can invite them to church. We can share our testimony. God has put the people in your office or wherever you work, he's put them around you on purpose because he knew that you would be there one day and be the right person to show them his kingdom. Might be subtle. It might be very overt. Allow God to lead you in every relationship you have at work. But God wants to work through us to touch other people. And they have to work with us because they're employed, right? They can't run away. Another thing about our work is that there's, there's no divide between sacred and secular. For hundreds of years, there was this division between what was holy and sacred and spiritual and the rest of life. And so you had the priests and the clergy and everyone else who was like not good enough. And only the priest could talk to God. But, but that's not what the Bible teaches. Actually, the Bible says we are all a royal priesthood. We're a holy nation, Peter writes. In other words, everything we do is sacred. Everything we engage in is holy. Why? We're a temple of the Holy Spirit. God's Spirit, God Himself lives in us. I don't know how that works because I, I don't get it. That's what the Bible says is true. And so we don't stop being a temple when we've got to change a nappy. So we come to church and say, oh, I'm a temple, fill me Holy Spirit. Because now it's time to be spiritual, right? But there's no divide, friends. We don't stop being a temple when we clock in at the office or we're parking next to a, someone at the traffic lights. <laughs> We don't stop being a temple if we're washing the dishes or making lunch or mowing the lawn or doing DIY. We are all, everything we do is dripping with eternity. And so no legitimate job, no legitimate work is less important or more important than God's eyes. Honestly, because God made us to work. Whether you're working or not well, working is work. Whether you are lowly employed or highly employed, 
whether you feel like your job is embarrassing to tell people what you do, or it's, you're very proud of it, legitimate work is a God-given gift. And there's no one job more important or less important than another in God's eyes. I sometimes have people asking me why I'm not a full-time pastor. And I want to say to them, but I am. I'm full-time for Jesus. I'm living my whole life for Jesus. No, no, but Glennon, but, but you work for a company and you have a, a boss. You're not, you're not working for the church full-time. And I, I think that some people, and I'm not sure why it is, but they think that being employed by the church is better, is more important, is more spiritual than being employed by a company. But God doesn't see it that way. And the calling on my life at this stage is not for that. Maybe it will be later, I don't know. But I'm okay with that. In fact, of all our elders and leaders, one of the eight is employed by the church. In other words, all the rest of us, we have normal jobs. We face the same pressures that everyone faces. And that has some implications because we might not have as much time as someone who's employed by the church, right? We just can't come and visit you in your home and have coffee every day. We would love to. Honestly, we would. But maybe, just maybe, God is wanting to do something different in Hope City Church. Because some people think, oh, the pastor must come visit me at home. Got to have the visit from the pastor. But imagine a community where everyone was having coffee with everyone. There was no hierarchy. The pastor's coming, better clean up the house, put on the kids' best clothes. No. Friends, we... God's design for care in a community is not a few leaders looking after a congregation. It's a caring congregation, okay? God does say to elders, take care of the flock. He does. But if you look at the, at the, the trajectory of how God cares for people, it starts off with Moses, one man looking after a nation, And then suddenly there are 72 elders that have to help him. God's progression is that we are a caring, loving community. Acts 2.44, Acts 2.42. Together they all shared and had life and lived out their lives together. So maybe God wants to do something different with us. Don't complain. Oh, we don't have a full-time pastor like that other church that I used to be in. Don't complain. Rather, see a gap. Invite someone to your home or go to someone's home and share God's love with them. You are as much a priest as I am. You don't need a pastor to come and visit you or a leader. We'd love to. Please invite us. Many of you have never invited us. Just saying. Just saying. I look forward to your invitation. But we're not more special because we're the pastors, okay? Let's be a caring community. We end on this quote from Charles Spurgeon about our work. He says, grace makes us the servants of God while we are still the servants of men. It enables us to do the business of heaven while we're attending to the business of earth. 
It sanctifies the common duties of life by showing us how to perform them in the light of heaven. It's beautiful. We live and we work and it's, it's meant to be good. It's not always easy, right? Because we work with humans. Humans are the biggest problem with planet Earth. <laughs> Just saying. We mess it up often. But we should ask God to give us his view on how work should be. Because we can have moments of, wow, this is what God's called me to be. I'm loving it. I'm thriving. I'm running the race God's called me to be. It'll never be perfect. I know that. But there should be a sense of the smile of heaven when we are working with all our might. And Paul says, work as if you're working for Jesus. Whether you are a slave or sweeping the streets or a CEO, work as if you're working for Jesus. And that's a, that's a leveler, that's a game changer because Paul says, he who is both your master and theirs is in heaven. And there's no favoritism with God. So I wanna pray for us as we're ending.